Welcome to the Global Visions Podcast. My name is Nick Sanzi, and I'll be today's host. The podcast is produced in conjunction with the Brown Journal for World Affairs and seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are super excited to be hosting our next guest to the podcast today, Dr. Jill Tarter. Dr. Tarter is an astronomer and the Chair Emeritus for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence Institute. While at the SETI Institute, Dr. Tarter primarily works on securing support and funding for exploratory science, particularly for the search for extraterrestrial life. The Institute uses several advanced processing technologies to scan exoplanets for potential life forms and broadcast signals from distant populations. Well, thank you, Dr. Tarter, for joining us today to the Global Visions podcast. Uh, we're very happy to have you. We have a section this year on uh, the politics of space, which I'm a section head of. And research is kind of an area that we haven't really gotten much input on. And you, your you know, particular field of research and experience uh, in your career in, in the field of extraterrestrial uh, intelligence is, is particularly fascinating. Um, and your work with the SETI Institute is particularly fascinating. And I, I was wondering if you could just start off by kind of telling us a little bit about uh, what is the SETI Institute? What have you kind of devoted your your life, your your studies to, and, and you know, to allow us to go from there? It's a big question, I know, but just to start us off. Okay, the uh, the SETI Institute is a five hundred one three C nonprofit that I co-founded in nineteen eighty four, a long time ago, and it was a way to um, allow funding to non non governmental funding to start to um, keep this research project going because we had been funded by NASA since the mid 70s. And then in 1983, uh, Senator Bryan from Nevada terminated the funding for SETI. And he did it with vengeance. He essentially said to NASA, look, you come back with this in your budget next year and you're going to suffer. So we had to uh, we had to raise funds privately and having this, uh, I actually gave you the wrong date. It was 1993 that um, Senator Bryan terminated NASA's funding for SETI. And we had already formed this nonprofit uh, to allow donations uh, for the research. And so we were able to then go out and campaign and continue to raise funds to replace the funding that we'd lost uh, from NASA. So what do we do? Well, when I when I wrote the charter for the SETI Institute, I said that we would serve as a research support hub for anyone doing any kind of research or exploration having to do with life beyond Earth. And of course, we started out with SETI per se, looking for technosignatures, uh, at the time looking for radio signatures, radio signals, and then subsequently optical, and now we've really broadened the whole field for what might be a technosignature. And because I could, as a nonprofit, we could set the indirect cost rate that we charged for money that we were handling, I could actually set it to the real cost of doing business, which at the time was like about 20% of the funds. Uh, whereas when we tried to get, when we tried to hire folks from Stanford or, or Berkeley or University of San Francisco, local universities, their indirect costs at the time were more like 100%. So suddenly, 
this was a very good idea because for a fixed amount of funding that NASA was willing to devote, we suddenly had much more of it that we could use to, to pay people mm. and to build equipment because we were able to get away from these very high indirect costs. And it turned out to be a really good idea. So very soon after we did this, uh, we started getting scientists who would call themselves astrobiologists or planetary scientists putting their grant proposals through us in order to get the same sort of savings. And we now have, I think last week, I think we have something like 109 PhD scientists Wow. who work with us and run their grants through our institution and our my colleagues. So it's been a very successful idea. Uh, we had a good idea and lots of people have um, made taken advantage of it. Oh, absolutely. It sounds like it. I guess on that point, you know, reading a little bit about SETI, the biggest thing that interested me was like, what are the people like that choose this as their field? Because it, it, you're dealing with some of the biggest questions and some questions people, you know, when you say that you're dealing with very seriously, might laugh because, because the idea of extraterrestrial intelligence is, is kind of something that we don't really, con like everyday people don't really concern themselves with, right? So like what kinds of people have you had the privilege to work with? Not only, you know, what do they study, but just as people that deal with these questions. Well, they're a special type of person because they appreciate how large the cosmos is and how much different phase space, different ways we might have to explore in order to find evidence of someone else's technology. And so there are people who can be comfortable with the idea that in their professional lifetime, they might not have the conventional success that most of us crave. And so there are people who are satisfied with waking up in the morning and not saying, oh, today I'm going to find the signal. But they wake up in the morning and they say, mm, I'm going to do something today that allows me to search better or faster or in a different way than I could last week. Mm. And that's where the gratification comes, making the search better understanding a new way to explore the cosmos. Uh, and there are also people who are a bit gutsy because certainly in the beginning, um, not only would they have to be content with perhaps not succeeding in their professional career, but also with the fact that I would sometimes say, well, I don't know if I'm gonna make payroll next month, right? Because the funding was was really um, a roller coaster, right? And there there are people who really um, are eager to ask a particular question that fascinates them, and then they're willing to be innovative and creative about how they go about answering that question, mm. and they much rather be and trying to answer questions that they themselves pose rather than questions that someone else puts in front of them. Mm. So that's the kind of people that work here and they're really pretty great. Yeah, it, it sounds like it. Um, and, you know, 
talking about the people and talking about the motivations behind uh, going to this kind of research, working at the SETI Institute, um, can you talk me through the dynamic of, because I'm sure most skepticism of this kind of work comes from a place as, you know, space exploration as a whole comes from a place of, uh, you know, they think it's escapism, they think it's uh, unnecessary, let's deal with our problems here before we, we start to move off planet. Um, and, and can you, you know, just talk about the rationale, the motivation for, for asking those big questions? Um, and again, another, another kind of bigger question, but um, I thought you might be able to comment on that. Well, certainly when we got started, we had to deal with this ha 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 little green men kind of mm. nonsense. And so we did what any other exploratory new scientific field would do is we held a lot of workshops. Mm. We wrote a lot of position papers we and papers that gave the rationale. I mean, this is a question that's as old as humans. And when we first walked out of the caves and looked up, we wondered whether there was somebody in another cave across the hill on the backside of that um, outcrop. And so it's something that we have wondered about for a very long time. And it isn't until really the 20, 20th and 21st centuries that we've had tools that will allow us to do the exploration. Yeah. So if I tell you that I believe there's life beyond earth, you shouldn't listen to me. That's belief, that's religion, that's not science, right? If I tell you that I want to explore to find what is out there and I have some new tools that haven't been used before to uh, look at the cosmos in a different way, then you should be interested because at least in astronomy, we have this really phenomenally um, lucky maybe history of when we build a new instrument, which does something that we haven't been able to do before, we get it funded by telling the funding sources, well, this new instrument's gonna solve this question and that question and the other question. But historically, the best thing that a new instrument has done is to tell us about something we never thought of, that we never had any idea was out there. Uh, but because we could look in a new way, we found it. Mm. And that's a pretty exciting kind of um, ride to be on, right? Mm. Uh, we don't, you know, yes, it does answer the questions that we said it would. We're not, mm. we're not kidding about that. But it often shows us something that we never expected. And primarily for me in the last decade and a half or so, um, the thing that has been so exciting is extremophiles and exoplanets mm. and what they're telling us about the potential for life, perhaps as we don't yet know it. And the fact that there might be a lot more habitable real estate out there uh, than we once imagined because there are creatures that can live in conditions that would be completely lethal for you and me. Mm -hmm. So we, when we started thinking about life beyond Earth, life as we didn't yet know it, you know, we put all of these restrictions on it. 
the temperature has to be between the freezing and boiling points of water. The pH has to be neutral. You can't have too much UV um, and, and all of these things which describe the environments that you and I would find favorable. But then as we began to find extremophiles, organisms living in conditions that were totally toxic to humans, yeah. we began to understand that there was a lot more potential real estate out there for habitability than we had once thought. And so we, we began taking these restrictions off and we look in places where we could, right? Mm -hmm. Not where we thought we should because it was like here, mm -hmm. but we just are eager to investigate um, environments that at first blush might not seem reasonable. And that's also um, informed what we look for. So sure. we started out listening with radio telescopes for electromagnetic waves at, at wavelengths of uh, on the order of centimeters, listening for radio signals. And then we opened up our explorations to looking for bright, bright flashes of light. And now we're thinking about all the new telescopes that are being built on the ground and in space and thinking about what they might reveal. Mm. Oh, excuse me, I have to turn this phone off. Oh, no problem at all. I guess on that point, if you could speak, so was the James Webb, the launching of the James Webb telescope an exciting development? What kinds of opportunities does that open up for uh, SETI? James Webb was spectacular. First of all, when it got launched, it opened up a pipeline that had been stuffed up with all kinds of other exploratory sciences that wanted to launch, but we couldn't do it because James Webb was just sucking all of the financial oxygen out of the room. And it's a fantastic telescope. And it cost a lot more than we ever thought it would be because we were doing something that had never been done before. They were building a telescope that was just so different from anything that had been conquered before. And so it just kept costing more and more and more. And the result of that was that many other ideas just got jammed up. We couldn't move forward with them. So launching it, the fact that it launched and it worked was incredibly exciting, not only because of what it could do, but because then it allowed all of these other opportunities a chance to get launched as well so james webb is great it's not the be-all and the end-all in terms of finding life it will tell us some things about other planetary systems that are nearby um, they have to be nearby because the, the signals are hard to um, interpret and, and gather and james webb is a finite size We'd really like something much bigger, and someday we may have something that's much bigger. But it also made us in the SETI community think about, well, you know, is there anything besides radio signals and optical signals deliberately being sent to Earth that might indicate somebody else has technology? And so we began thinking about what these new telescopes might reveal. And I like to think about a system called TRAPPIST-1. 
which was recently discovered within the last five years. And this planetary system, exoplanetary system, has seven Earth-sized planets in orbit around it. And the central star is a very small, low-mass red dwarf star, so much less faint. I'm sorry, much fainter, put it that way, much fainter than our sun. And so these planets are all very close to their host star, yet they are at different distances from the star, so they should have different equilibrium temperatures. The most distant planet should be colder in general, on average, than the closest in planet. And then we wonder, well, James Webb won't be able to do it, probably, but if we get something even bigger and we could actually image these individual exoplanets, what if two or three or four or maybe all of them weren't at different temperatures at all, but they were all the same? And an explanation for that, there might be a plain physics explanation having nothing to do with biology, but it also might be that on one of those planets, life developed and evolved to have a technology and maybe didn't control its population very well and decided, hmm, they really could use some more real estate. And so they hopped over to the next world because it's very close by in that system. Mm -hmm. And they modified that world. They um, engineered it to be like home. And then, you know, that continued. And so many of these planets in that one system got modified to look like home and where things were comfortable. And that would be very strange in a universe without technology. Mm. But perhaps someday we might stumble onto something like that. And that would be very, very interesting. Somebody Somebody's been here, somebody had technology, somebody did some amazing astroengineering. This is the result that we're seeing. So that's a techno signature, the kind of thing that we never thought of before, before we had the opportunity of these spectacular telescopes that might show us such things. Wow, that's uh it it's so otherworldly, you know, to no pun intended, but otherworldly to hear to hear kind of like a serious discussion on if we have the technology, this is realistically, you know, something that might be observable, which is really interesting and which, you know, make makes me excited for the next projects as much as excited about James Webb as I was when it launched. But we're not going to, I really don't think, given the fiscal history of this research field, I don't think we're going to build a telescope for mm. that purpose. What we will do is build telescopes that are intended to explore the universe in different ways. And SETI will simply say, hmm, how could we use those? Mm -hmm. How could we do what's often called commensal observing, which is, uh, it's a biological term, commensal, and it means eating out of the same dish. So someone else will have um, applied for telescope time and been granted time to do some program. And then we say in SETI, well, how could we use those data? How can we make use of that telescope, which is looking at some place on the sky at some frequency, which we can't control, but which nevertheless might be interesting? So how might we analyze the data in a different way, looking for engineered as opposed to astrophysical signatures? And and do you think right now there's a greater demand for data and, and imagery than there is a supply. I mean, James Webb will help with that, right? But do you, do you envision like 
is there enough demand for it right now to push the type of developments that you're talking about, the types of types of developments that would allow you to, to observe that system within, are we moving in that direction? Is there enough momentum in that direction fiscally, you know, in funding for research in the field of space exploration? Space exploration is a bigger umbrella than I can have any expertise of talking about. But yes, if you're talking about this question of life beyond Earth and extremophiles and exoplanets, there's just so much excitement and apparently congressional ability and willingness to fund things. Because, you know, what are we what are we most interested in? We're interested in ourselves, right? And we want to know how we fit into this cosmos. And because this is a young field, exoplanetary study and um, the discovery of extremophiles, these are really young scientific fields. So they aren't all stuffed up at the top with, excuse me, old white men. And so there's ability there for young people to take leadership roles. And the thing that excites me is that I think some of the best and the brightest of these young scientists who are exploring these concepts are young women. And so I think it's a huge opportunity to have some um, diversity and gender equity and also all kinds of different, support all kinds of different diversity. Again, because it's not stovepipe. It's not historically constrained by, well, I did it this way, so you have to do it that way, or you have to look like me in order to, to make a mark here. Absolutely. That's very exciting. And and would you say that there's, from an international lens, from multilateral kind of cooperation in trying to understand our place in the universe, is there cooperation between states uh, and nationalities um, at SETI, at in other institutes in other countries? Do you see this as kind of being a common endeavor that, that binds us all together um, as we move forward, just from that lens? Yes. Um, if you want to see the world, become an astronomer, really. We are a very cooperative, collaborative science, and we build facilities around the world in different locations, which have special environments, including the, the South Pole, in order to do our science. And I think I like to go and talk to audiences about this this question of searching for life beyond Earth, because I believe, I understand that it's going to be something that isn't done by a single nation state. It is going to have to be a global cooperation. And that by trying to put humans and life on this planet in a larger context, it's like holding up a mirror to everybody on the planet and saying, see, in this mirror, you think that you look different than I do. And you have different customs and you may have a different skin color or different language. But really, in this larger context of the cosmos, everybody in that mirror is all the same. We're all earthlings. Yeah. And I think that it's timely and really pretty critical that we get that earthling meme spread around because we're all going to have to work together to clean up the messes that we made. That's that's a great point. And it's a whole also a hopeful point because I think the more that I, you know, doing the section, we've been reading about a lot of funding that goes into to satellite research and uh, space exploration is in large part out of the necessity for national defense purposes. And 
it's it's nice to see it from another angle for pure research and cooperation uh, with other countries being that that's the motivating factor. Yeah, but Nick, I think there's something that, that is beginning to have some traction, which I, I don't agree with, and that's this idea of a planet B. Oh, well, if things get too bad here, you know, we'll have the technology to move large masses of individuals to another planet mm-hmm. and start over again. I think that's the wrong point of view. Because if we don't figure out how to get it right here, we're just going to take the same bad habits to there and trash another planet. Right. So I think we have to figure out how to have a long future here. And then we can go explore other places, not as a lifeboat, mm-hmm. but because we want to know what other amazing things physics and chemistry turned into in other places. You think that the the current efforts for for say Mars though they're they don't have any value because I mean we were talking about the the relationship I forget the term you put uh, there was a there was an evolutionary term with a bull we eat from the same bowl commensal you know to use that term you don't think it's a commensal relationship where if Mars is what gets people excited about this and it's what get it gets funding into into space exploration and then they have, we can have a commensal relationship with that bowl. Do you, do you see like any kind of merit in it or do you think it's really important to you know stay focused on on the here? Oh no, I think exploring Mars with any technologies that we can manage is extremely exciting. We're not going there as a failsafe for here. We've got to get it right here as well as on, and and we may have tools that help us get it right here because of something that we discover that happened on Mars that maybe hasn't happened here in the past or can tell us about different endpoints, possible ways that things can work out. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, in, in physics, you'd, you'd always like for any experiment to know what the branching ratios are. You'd like to know how many times does the outcome go here versus the outcome go there or another way. If Mars can so- show us, perhaps it can, different ways to make a living in the cosmos, I think it's very valuable. Again, I just don't think it's a lifeboat. We can learn a lot from it. It may help us get things better here, make things better here. But I don't think that that's what we should be planning on. Very interesting. Very interesting. And, and I wanted to ask, because I was reading a little bit about, you had uh, responded to a comment that I believe Stephen Hawking made about active SETI, which was sending signals actively out to into the void to see if uh, we get a response or we have some form of response there. And I was wondering what you thought about like the the dark force theory of, you know, that the universe is not a friendly neighborhood or a teeming petri dish, but a dark forest. And and we shouldn't be making so much noise as just these very, very primitive civilizations. Um, Because, you know, I think, I think obviously in 20 years, we'll look back and we'll say, we'll say, oh, we had no idea what we were doing, right? Because we, that's what we always say. But I, I just wanted to get your perspective on that. Well, this question of, you know, we, we shouldn't shout into the cosmos because anything out there will hear us and and come and eat us up. I think that that's not the reason to withhold transmitting information. I think the reason not to transmit right now is that we're not old enough. We're not, if you start transmitting and you want that message, you really want that message to be discovered, you have to think about co-temporality as well as cohabitation in the same general part of the galaxy. So if you transmit a message for five minutes or a year, 
that message is going to go by your intended target and it's only going to be acceptable accessible for five minutes or a year mm -hmm. so transmission is really an ongoing project if you start it you never stop right mm -hmm. otherwise there's much more limited opportunities for your message to be heard and i you know sometimes we can manage a two-year plan in our current state of adolescence not very often do we get to five or 25 or 50 year plans that we actually execute on and so this idea that we're capable of taking on essentially an infinite plan of constantly transmitting i just don't think we're grown up enough to do that when we ourselves evolve to become an old technology and one that's capable of taking care of our affairs, then I think that we have the opportunity, perhaps the responsibility, and hopefully the, um, the fortitude and the patience to start transmitting for the benefit of those that are coming behind us that are not yet at our state of technological advancement. But we're not there yet. We're really young. Nowhere near being an old technology. So I, I guess on that, and to to wrap us up with the final question, I kind of talking about what this means, what this kind of research means, not for us, because as you said, people go into the SETI Institute with the knowledge that they're probably not going to make the, the discovery today. So what for the motivation for the future generations? I know it's kind of like this new idea of us really being conscious of how we're built, developing not only our civilization, but also our information and, and our infrastructure for future generations, probably something that we haven't been doing before. I was wondering if you could just, just touch upon uh, that kind of idea in the context of your work. Well, Caleb Scharf, who's the chairman of the astrobiology uh, department at Columbia University, has a very nice way of summing that up. And he says, on a finite world, a cosmic perspective is not a luxury it's a necessity. So I, I think that there are all kinds of threads that are woven into that, that quote, but it has to do with being able to cooperate, being able to see ourselves in a larger context, being able to take on projects that are challenges for the planet and all life on it as a global endeavor. And maybe if enough of us work on it in enough, in enough different ways, we'll end up finding a solution that no one expected when we started. And it's, of course, never too soon. To that start. concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast. Thank you for listening. And thank you to Dr. Tartar for the opportunity to speak with her. We'll see you next time.